the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples. Those are the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. I am absolutely over the moon that today's guest, Aaron Fairchild, agreed to come on the show. Aaron has the most beautiful and inspiring Instagram account and business called Journal as Altar. And I've been very lucky to attend one of her workshops and receive her supplies and ephemera in the mail. And she's presenting at this year's Witches New Year event happening on October 15th and 16th, 2022. Erin is a social worker and a therapist, though not currently practicing, with expertise related to childhood trauma, attachment, um, things that are totally my jam, um, but also in preventing violence in systems and communities and families. In addition to Journal as Alter, Erin continues to work in the fields of equity-centered, trauma-informed care and violence prevention over at Collective Action Consulting. So I discovered Erin's work through that of one of my mentors, Desiree Attaway. You all know Desiree Attaway's work, actually, because she is the one who gave me permission to use her signature question, what identities do you lead with, as my opener in every interview. Anyway. Desiree and Aaron have collaborated and uh, co-facilitated multiple times on journaling as part of equity work. So they were working together. I saw that on Instagram. I was like super fascinated and have followed Aaron ever since, been very inspired. I love the idea of journaling as a more personal, private, introverted form of creative practice but I seem to enjoy other people's journals more than my own. Erin's in particular, it's so beautiful. I love her style and her expression. I found that speaking with her though and thinking about this conversation um, a lot in the days since we spoke, has it's really opened up a lot of space and more possibility for my own journaling practice. And then just by accident, totally looking for something else, I happened to find a journal of mine just today from my time at cooking school in Paris back in 1996. I've never been much of a journaler, so I I'm totally don't remember keeping this journal, um, but it, I value it now so much and it's probably time for an update. So I hope this episode inspires you too. Erin, so glad to have you here and excited to ask you this first question. What identities do you lead with? Um, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And I love this as a starting question. It's really thoughtful. Um, and actually, I feel like it's such a major question because I think a lot of my um, kind of way of being with myself and being in the world is trying to disentangle myself from the identities that um, are put on me and the way that my identities shape my worldview, even if my sort of choices might be, I want to yearn towards something different. The identities I was socialized into might be, often are impacting deeper parts of myself than sometimes I want them to be. And then there's all the parts of my identity that are not visible to people when they look at me um, mm -hmm. and that are almost like more nuanced or complex than like a way to say an identity. And I love the question. So, um, you know, I think the, 
the identities that the world has me lead with that aren't necessarily like, I don't even know, I, I can't say I choose them or don't choose them, but the world, the identities that the world sees is that I'm white and you can't avoid that. That's very evident. Um, and then I'm fat. That's, you can't avoid that when my body is perceived in public as fat. That's just the way it is. Um, I have no problem with that. Um, I'm definitely interested in fat liberation from a social justice perspective. The world is not quite there. So, you know, that's complex. And then the other part of my, I guess I could say so much, but to condense in a bit, I'm a queer person. And that part of my identity is often not visible to people unless they are also queer and kind of in on it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, or when I'm with my partner who is more, um, you know, quote unquote, queer looking than I am, according to how people perceive queerness. So mm-hmm. my identities are kind of like those, those identities are probably the most present and easy to name, but then there's all the identities like that, um, are probably more deeply about who I am Mm. than those. Um, Mm. So, and those are probably less like, I think probably like my biggest, I'm like, how do I put this into words? But my probably biggest um, kind of anchor or um, guidepost or like sort of what drives me in this life is to live in a world where everyone's needs are met because everyone is interested in everyone's needs being met. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like a thing we're collectively committed to. That I feel like is the biggest part of my identity. But how do you claim that as an identity? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. What's the, yeah. Identities and archetypes. That seems like a, mm-hmm. a whole conversation we should have mm-hmm. uh, at, at some point collectively. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about uh, the, term witch because mm-hmm. you know we're we're coming up into what some might call season of the witch i'm doing a lot of episodes um around witch's new year which is sort of october 31st november 1st and i know that this is I, i've had some very interesting answers people were like i do not relate to that term at all or this is something um that is slightly adjacent to that, or it's from my cultural lineage. What's your relationship to the term witch? Do do aspects of that archetype resonate with you at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also love this question, um, especially as we're entering into the season. Um, I would say that I am witch adjacent, <laughs> okay. um, witch parallel. Uh, and I, the reason I think that is, is, is also complex, but primarily is that I, I haven't, I wouldn't say I have studied enough or have a lineage or like a deeply rooted enough practice to claim that as an identity. And I fully recognize that there are a lot of aspects of my life and my spiritual life in particular, my journaling practice, the way I show up in my work that is quote unquote witchy. Um, and that takes, and I also believe that a part of a big aspect of being a witch is to, in the way that I understand it is um, to be involved in the work of ritual, of um, spell casting, and that can be mean so many things to so many people. And then just being a really keen and present observer of space and time where we are and weaving that into something meaningful. So I do feel like I engage with witchery, if you will, in that way, but I don't feel like I am a witch because I don't know enough about, I mean, not that it needs to be gatekept. And I don't feel like I feel confident enough to claim that as an identity just because mm-hmm. I don't, you know, 
I don't think I have enough practice. Mm, yeah. That makes sense to me. And, you know, it, which is such an umbrella term. There's so many different lineages within that and just practices, traditions that are not um, dogmatic, right? Mm-hmm. What? Uh, but when I think of you, I think of someone – So. A, a really big aspect of the witch to me, that identity, that archetype is about working towards justice mm-hmm. and liberation. And in a way, we're reclaiming the term witch because mm-hmm. um, folks who were working towards collective um, mm-hmm. access to the commons, for instance, or like, you know, collective care, unionizing, um, political movements, all of that were branded witches. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of you and your work, it is so magical. It is so ritual. And it's so grounded in justice that I'd be like, oh, yeah, she's a witch. So it's interesting <laughs> that you're like, I, I don't know enough about it. Because I'm like, oh, well, it's like, you know, we don't have to know how gravity works to have it work on us. It's like, <laughs> I'm like you're a witch, but I obviously will not put that on you. Um, I'll but- say, how about if I say I'm not, not a witch? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There we go. Yeah, I'm not, not a witch. I'm witch adjacent. I love that. Yeah. So Let's talk about your journaling practice. So how did journaling enter your life? And like, do you still have some of your earliest journals? Are you one Mm. of those people who's like, I've been journaling since I could write at the age of three? (laughs) Um, I have been journaling since I could write in one way or another. Um, I don't think when I was, when I first learned to write, so it's probably when I I started writing things down a lot and keeping books of writing and making, I used to make my own notebooks a lot. As soon as Mm. I had access to a stapler, I was (laughs) kind of obsessed with stapling paper into books. Um, So probably when I was around five, you know, I didn't know that I was keeping journals at the time. I don't didn't have that language that I recall anyway. Uh, and so it entered my life just so I can't say a, like one specific time. It just kind of happened organically. I was always drawn toward to um, art supplies and stationery and paper, particularly paper, paper, and um, always had a real fondness for like, I always find an affinity with a certain type of writing instrument. Even when I was that little, it was like this crayon, this color sharpened this way, you know, it's pleasing to me and I need that. Um, you know, and I think my, my, I grew up in a pretty, like a, a, a liberal and like, mm, uh, I don't know if the word's unusual, but just my parents are amazing. They are very, um, open-minded and pretty free thinking and we're very different than the conservative rural community I grew up in. So we were all always kind of a little bit against the grain. Um, and they were very creative. My mom was a house painter when women weren't ha- painting houses. My dad's a carpenter there. We just grew up kind of working class and in that um, using our hands kind of way of being. Mm-hmm. And I think that shapes a lot of that part of me. And I do have a few core memories that, really, I can hearken back to, like, I can tie, I can see an attachment forming to the act of having paper and scissors or glue or pens or crayons in my hand and having that be, feel important to me. Mm. Um, And some of them really are um, connected to positive experiences with family members. Mm. I wonder if other people are also, I can, I suddenly, as you were describing, like, I had these core memories, I had Mm -hmm. this image flashed before my eyes and it must have been like kindergarten or grade one when they used to have the glue remember the glue bottles that were like brown liquid glue and they had a rubber top that you had to (laughs) cut the little slit in it yep yeah oh my gosh and and how 
wonderful that felt, how empowering mm-hmm. it was. And I, I really appreciate the way you talk about paper almost as an animistic way. Like you have this strong affinity yes. relationship with paper, which it's like, yeah, of course I've had that. I remember going to a shop in my town called the Red Balloon in the eighties when you first saw those displays of the different eight and a half by 11s with paper that would have printed images like Maybe you'd have balloons or maybe you'd have clouds or it was like yep. kind of like pre-scrapbooking days, but mm-hmm. you would write on that special paper. It was so expensive. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You're like bringing me back, Erin. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. So as we grow up, a lot of people do lose touch with like what brought them joy as a younger person. So why was that not the case for you? Um, you know, yeah, also a great question. I To tie it back to the previous question, I do actually have not the first – um, book I wrote in, but I do have a very early actual like formal diary. It had a little lock on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I got it in fourth grade as a teddy bear on the cover mm-hmm. and I do have it. And what's interesting to me about and, and hard about it and beautiful and heartbreaking all at once is there's multiple pages in that diary where already at that age, I'm like, I'm too fat to be loved. All my other classmates are, you know, just listing all of these things about like, like what's wrong with me, really based on my body, because I was already receiving messages that my body was wrong. Mm -hmm. And to have that diary and look back at it is very meaningful. It's very powerful. Like I said, it's, it's beautiful to have. It's also, devastating, right? Mm -hmm. To to be back in touch with that little person that I was, and she's still with me today. (laughs) Um, And I think that the act of being able to have a container for those feelings that felt um, at times out of control, the way Mm -hmm. that it shaped my identity. And from about fifth to eighth grade, I was bullied very intensely for my weight. Kind of like I was the the butt of jokes at school. I was like visible pranks happening to me Mm. in front of, you know, like that. I wasn't getting physically beat up. I will say I didn't go that far, but it was pretty brutal for for Mm. several years. And um, the act of having journals and writing in journals and also just engaging with craft of any kind. I made paper a lot. That's another story. It's very funny, actually, some of the nerdy stuff that I did. Um, (laughs) Like the the, the sneaky behavior I engaged in was like stealing laundry lint and then waiting for my parents, even though they would let me do it. I made it, somehow I made it into like a controversy. I waited until they weren't home and made paper with like the laundry lint. And I forget, it was like, I was like in fifth grade and a picture frame and the ironing board I think it's because I th- I assumed they wouldn't let me iron use the oh, iron, but they would have. Yeah. They right. definitely would have. <laughs> they were pretty like you know open minded. But anyway, so I was that kind of a kid, and so those things were always soothing to me. And so there's definitely this connection between experiencing harm, um, and sometimes causing harm. Let's be real. I wrote about that in my diaries too. Like here's the mean stuff that we did when we ganged up on Heather today. Mm. And I was already grappling with all of that complexity in my journals. And so I think to me, they're like, the reason that practice has stayed with me is because when my life was overwhelming, my journals and diaries caught me. Mm. Wow. My gosh, how fortunate. Like, Thanks, past Aaron, for keeping those <laughs> journals so that you would have this like archaeological record to go through and, mm-hmm. um, you know, feel validated perhaps sometimes, I imagine, because have not having access to those direct words, I think as adults, we can also be perplexed by our behavior or our feelings because we, we don't sort of, quote unquote, remember the root of it. Like, where is this coming from? 
we blocked it out. It was too long ago. It's like <laughs> kind of blurry. It was a traumatic time. Our hippocampus wasn't quite functioning, right? You have an actual record and can go back and be like so compassionate to that little self. I imagine this is why you became a therapist. Is that right? <laughs> um, it has a big part to do with why I became a therapist. I think for a lot of people who have been um, on the receiving end of oppressive dynamics or of abuse of any kind, you know, we are more likely to get drawn into helping professions. So there's that. Um, and then I also became a therapist because I started working pretty early young in my life with children impacted by trauma. And mm-hmm. I just kind of identified with and felt I didn't experience um, trauma from my parents at home, you know, other family members or anyway, I had a safe mm-hmm. and stable childhood, let's say that. Mm-hmm. Um, other than what was happening at school, which didn't feel safe. Um, But I think early on, I was able to pair the experiences of children living with trauma with kind of like, I had some traumatic experiences, but I had all of, and I had all of these safe adults in my life Mm -hmm. and my creative practices and school really held me up. And here I was working with young people where school was not a good experience for them. They were being dismissed, being treated Mm -hmm. like they were disposable their goodness, their inherent goodness, not being recognized by the systems around them. And that does have to do with having been bullied. And it does have to do with having a record of it mm-hmm. and being able to see like, I can I can look back and kind of know with some level of clarity why I have still to this day, no matter how much therapy I do, it's that stuff, that, that trauma is still present with me and I know why. Mm-hmm. I could just see for, for kids who aren't getting the feedback and don't have that container that they don't know why and they feel like they're the problem. Yeah. And so and that's never the case. It's never the, the child's never the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Everybody gets to just revel in that for a moment, like mm-hmm. press that in. The child <laughs> is never the problem. No, yeah. yeah. Thank you for saying that. Okay. So you talked about ganging up on Heather. <laughs> you talked about all this other stuff. Okay. Have you ever had like a Harriet the Spy situation with your journal where like someone read it and was like, wow, like, and it caused conflict? Because I, I just, I think about negative experiences that, that have, that I've heard of with other people that I've been on the receiving end. I think that's maybe one reason why some people are a little bit of a, a afraid of keeping a journal. Cause like, what if someone reads it yeah. and discovers I'm a horrible person or like knows my, can weaponize what I'm, um, you know, vulnerable about. Have you mm-hmm. ever had a situation like that with your journal? Um, I haven't, I actually have not had a situation like that with a journal. One time kind of parallel to that, my mom did find in my, when she was doing my laundry, she was not a snooper. She would not, none of my, neither of my parents would ever have read my diaries. Uh, But when she was doing my laundry, when I was probably like in junior high, she, um, there, she just was pulling out my pockets to put them. And there was a note that I've been passing back and forth with someone. Um, this is actually kind of funny. Um, <laughs> it's actually very funny to me. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's, no, it's not DMI. It's just real. <laughs> my friend and I were um, joking and and kind of in a, in a problematic way that's reminiscent of the time and also in a um, I'm a repressed lesbian way, we were we were writing back and forth. And one of us said, like, you look pretty today. The other one said um, and then I wrote one of us wrote, I can't remember who wrote, but I'm not a lesbian. And then there was this whole thread of us passing this note back and forth and talking, accusing each other of being gay in a joking way, but yeah. also in a problematic way, you know, yeah. so tangled up and my mom. I must have been like 13, I think, found the note. And my mom being the mom that she is was like, 
is there something that you want to talk to me about Erin? And I was like, what are you talking about? You're such a weird hippie. Leave me alone. That was me. I was a handful. And she was like, well, I found this note and you're, you're talking about being gay in it. And I just want you to know that if that's the case, it's okay. And you, we can talk about it and you don't have to hide it. And I was just like, mom, gross. You know, mom, that's disgusting. We were just joking. Yeah. Get out of here. Um, And then, you know, I guess probably maybe six years later, seven years later when I came out, she was like, yeah, we know. (laughs) So so sweet, honey. She she is so so sweet. Um, Both of my parents are amazing in that way. But to answer the question, I mean, it it wasn't a a journal. It was a letter, but kind of similar to a journal. And though I haven't had a traumatic experience or a difficult experience with people interacting with my journals, that question that you ask, though, is present in every workshop that I teach. So mm-hmm. when I teach jur- journaling, creative journaling workshops on various themes, there's there's almost always at least a few people that are that express being afraid to start or they start and then they stop or it just becomes a creative barrier mm-hmm. because they are afraid of their journals being read. And often it's because they'll, they'll just say in the chat or... Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people send me emails, actually, not even just straight from my website mm-hmm. in the contact me that are like I'm where they they share. I'm having a really hard time getting started because this person found my my diary and or my journal and here's how they use it against me. Mm-hmm. And it it took away this practice is really important to me. and I don't know how to get it back. And so yeah. a lot of my work is is about helping people um, try to create ritual and safe space in the context of a journal so they can get back to that feeling of safety. Mm, mm. Oh, that's, that's nice to know that that comes up and that's a big part of it. It does. I don't I, like I, mine is almost like the secondary trauma of experiencing it through other people or mm-hmm. like experiencing so-and-so wrote about you or that kind of thing. And so I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know why this is so hard for me, but I do think that's a big barrier is like witnessing such a violation. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate that that's a big part of your work. Yeah. I think I'm actually, yeah, I'm in the process right now because it's come up so much of designing uh, either, I don't know, some writing or workshop or some content that is specifically about when journaling doesn't feel good or easy yeah. uh, because of a variety of things, but including because people might have used your journals, like to use your words in a way that weaponized them against you. Mm. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I like th- Thank you. That's good. So good. Amplifying that. So what do you do when you are, you personally, Erin, are like creatively blocked? Do you ever, first of all, it's kind of hard to imagine you being creatively blocked. I look and it's just like, wow, this person is like a a fountain of creativity. So thank you. Do you ever get blocked? What do you do when you get blocked? And and kind of parallel to that, like, what do you do if you just don't really like what you created? Mm -hmm. I feel maybe also like I'm just being super, like full transparency. I'm like, help me, help me, Aaron. But like, do you ever have those experiences? Yeah, of course I do. Um, I I think that typically what happens for me is not necessarily that I have a creative block. I think for me, the problem, it's not a problem. The reality is there's more in my head than I could get out mm-hmm. in one lifetime, it feels like, or in one two-week period <laughs> or whatever it is, right? There's like, there. I don't think that I'm really at a loss for um, creative ideas, but I sometimes, actually fairly often, just don't have the energy to to get it out. So it's, it's not so much like I don't have an idea, but what blocks me more is like, 
I'm actually still scrolling on Instagram and now I'm tired just to be a real person or yeah. like, yeah. you know, I'm, we're now binge watching something and I'm, I'm doing that instead of journaling or other, other priority, other time conflicts like work or, um, I just started gardening recently in a major way, like jumped right in like full force. And so that also takes time. So there's other, other avenues, right. The creative creativity comes out, but I do have people often don't, believe me, or it doesn't seem this way based from my social media presence, but I'll go weeks sometimes without journaling. Um, I have a daily practice, but I don't always do it. (laughs) Oh, wait a second. Can you say more about that? You're like, I have a daily practice where I like think about journaling. Um, I have a daily practice. I always think about journaling. Yes. So Mm -hmm. I I think about it like every day because it's comforting to me. It's just like a well-worn pathway in my brain. So if I'm Mm -hmm. not journaling, I'm thinking about it. I have Mm -hmm. the intention of a daily practice and I know what it looks like and feels like. And and sometimes I don't do it. Gotcha. I love that though. You don't just like discard it or you don't like um, let that slip as an identity or like as a practice Mm -mm. just because you're not doing it right then. Oh, that's really relieving. Well, so so many of the themes that I think that come up for people from my experience, you know, in this space is a lot of, um, in addition to ways people have been hurt before from people interacting with their journals is just a lot of um, policing ourselves and setting internal goals that honestly are not grounded in anything other than our own. Like no one else in the world cares or knows if I, unless I tell them that that if I do my daily practice every day, it's, it's not, it really shouldn't be a, like a way that I'm measuring my worth as a person. And yet, and yet people often say, want to talk about, um, sometimes I do one-on-one sessions to support people. Um, sometimes it's in the context of workshops. Sometimes people just DM me on social media, but, um, you know, I'm so behind, I'm so behind in my journaling. I had a goal and now I'm 45 days behind and I haven't journaled in three months and it feels impossible because I need to go back and fill in all those pages. And Mm. my practice now at this point, having struggled with that or, you know, just not really struck, it's like, that's kind of overstating it. But if having facing that, having faced that and my practice is like, just start today. Because your journal doesn't care. Your journal actually does not care if there are three months of blank pages. And I do talk to my journals and treat them in an animistic way. They are living <laughs> things to me. Um, my journals are allies. They're not, I just wrote a thing about how they're not judges and juries. They're 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 in solidarity with me. So if I took three months of time, it's because I needed to take three months of time. <laughs> and then I go back sometimes and um, I will just change the, if they're predated pages, I'll just go back and change the date or right. I'll decide, oh, these are practice pages now. So just like yeah. scribble. Oh, oh, that's also very relieving. I'm like deep breath. That just feels <laughs> big, you know, the permission is, is really helpful. I think for mm-hmm. those of us who do get caught up a little bit. So one of your, um, I don't know what you call it, slogans, phrases. It's a <laughs> sticker that I got in my workshop yeah. kit is um, these pages are portals. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say these pages are portals? Where are you going? Where are we going? <laughs> well, when I started thinking about the concept of treating my journals like altars, really, um, it was reflecting back on this lifetime of engaging with a, with paper, a paper practice, paper craft, journaling. Sometimes it was scrapbooking. I've always been slightly embarrassed, but just to be real, to be like, I'm a scrapbooker because it feels sort of like, I don't know, there's so much associated with that, that 
that also is this is me calling myself out because it, it really is binary thinking or supremacy thinking to be right. like there's certain types of craft or art that are um, worthy and relevant and some yeah. that are just like silly yeah. and you know there's also a so caricature much sex- yeah caricature yeah. and there's so much sexism in that too honestly yeah. like stereotypes of who might be doing that but anyway mm-hmm. um I, all of those practices have been helpful to me and fun and a good part of my life and um I forgot where I was going. <laughs> well, when you started treating your journals oh, yeah, as Walters. Yeah. Right, right. So when I started treating, I got lost in the thread of paper craft. <laughs> when I started treating my journals as Walters, it was really a result of me looking back at the impact of the practice in my life over personal, you know, so personal experiences. But also once I started, uh, I became a social worker and a therapist and I started getting more engaged in policy and um you know, micro and macro social justice level violence prevention and a variety of other um, contexts where I was consistently exposed to trauma and grief and loss and oppression and community uh, and um, with people I was supporting intimately. I, I realized that the way I was supporting myself in my journal felt like it needed a different word to make it have more weight because it, and then I, well, and then I realized that my journals were altars. That's why they feel kind of like living things to me is that my journals are altars to possibility and potential to the world I dream about for all of us. And I need to hold the threads, the threads of those dreams to not get weighted down by uh, the grief of the work that I do. And so when I say this page is a portal or these pages are portals, it's really an invitation for anyone accessing those words to to dream and vision the world you want and make it come to life on a page. And it could be that you're just doing it with like the color that it would feel to you, or you have stickers that feel good, or you cut pa- cut pieces out of magazines and you make a collage, or you press flowers and you um, write about what your dream and your vision is. Uh, and sometimes the dream and the vision is I just want to like fold my laundry and put it away. (laughs) And I'm going to just make a to-do list about it. And a lot of times for me, the dream and vision is, you know, that big part of my identity that I mentioned earlier that I'm still trying to kind of figure out, which is that I want everyone to have what they need because we're all interested in helping everyone have what they need. Not because we're like following rules or we're in trouble for not doing it or that it's we've, that we move towards it together. That's, you know, just the idea of collective, collective, liberation and well-being. And I need to, I need to keep writing it down and reminding myself. And so doing it in an artistic or creative way just helps me stay inspired and connected to that concept. Mm. Well, I want to give a little bit more love to scrapbooking because I'm thinking (laughs) about your younger self who is essentially writing a diary. Like Mm -hmm. I think when a lot of people are like journaling, you sit down, you're writing words and you're, and it's like a narrative diary. It's like, you know, Mm -hmm. just like you've done throughout history and where I'm archiving my day. But there's something about scrapbooking, which is like, I'm going to embellish, I'm Mm going to like create the feeling of my day or the Mm -hmm. feeling of this event or whatever it is. And then you're taking it somewhere else where it's like, and what are we trying to vision and why is that important? Because I do wonder if those of us who think about um, journals as diaries, Mm -hmm. like when I think about like, what am I putting in here (laughs) you know it's like what kind of prompts are you like what happened for you Aaron that shifted you I'm just thinking about scrapbooking because it's like how did you shift from this like Mm -hmm. linear more cognitive diary of of events Mm -hmm. to this is a portal to the world I'm trying to collectively Mm -hmm. co-create and it's an emergent property with this being that is the journal it there is always this emergent that um quality to um often the way that I keep journals 
it's also both and because I do still do um, some people call it memory keeping now. That's like the cool modern memory keeping um, scrapbooking. And a lot of my I actually do make lots of pages that are linear. Like, here's what I did today. I want to remember this. Um, Here's something funny. Someone said sometimes I write what we ate for dinner because it was good. You know, there are the I do keep some track of some mundane details in my journals. Um, and I, and I still think that when I do that, they're altars, um, because I, I want to also try to find magic in the mundane to get through this life. I just feel like we're living in times where it's difficult to be human when, um, we're living in such inhumane times. It's just to be a human in inhumane times is, is very overwhelming. And so trying to bring magic into like what I had for dinner tonight and I'm going to write it down and draw a little picture of it. It, to me, it feels good. I think there's lots of people that do that, that might not attach that significance to it. And that's fine too, if they enjoy doing it, you know, there's no right or wrong. So I do focus on linear mundane details, um, just like sort of daily stuff. And then when I feel most inspired and most um, like I want to tap into the collective and feel held by my journal and feel held by the wisdom that's come before me. And sometimes what am I learning from my ancestors? How are we kind of, how am I moving forward to correct some of those mistakes or to be in better relationship anyway with the people and the places around me than they might've been? Um, That's when I'm tapping into that feeling. That's when my pages become like a portal. Like, like sometimes I'll just write on a page. If I write this page as a portal and then I say, um, you know, I did one recently that was like, I just wrote down, um, you know, everyone is swimming in a river and we're laughing and um, we're, we sang songs that I was kind of capturing kind of like when I went camping with friends, but it was like in this vision, it's like everyone is swimming and laughing. We have fresh fruit. Um, we feel safe and comfortable and good in that moment. Everyone has what they need. The breeze is blowing. Um, we're not thinking about all the things that are wrong. We're here, you know, that to me is like that really did happen. And also that page is now a portal to me because um, I want to hold on to it and I want to be able to access that feeling when I look at the page. Sometimes this page is a portal is like um, trans children know they're sacred because of the way we treat them, the way the world treats them. Right. And that's like I want us to go there together. So I'm just making a page that's kind of almost like pretending like it's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Casting the spell. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, that's what it is. In a way, it is spell casting. Um, I, you know, it brings us back to the question about about identifying as a witch. And I think there's, you know, there's lots of ways that, you know, I probably show up in it that is that are witchy or or make me a witch. Um, and I'll just be you know, just constantly understanding um, what my relationship to that word is. Mm-hmm. Well, as we move to this last question. I'm I'm finding myself feeling like there's the obvious answer of journaling, right? How do you cope with grief and rage? Obviously, journaling is part of it. Mm-hmm. But if we were to get like more granular, mm-hmm. how do you, Erin, how do you cope mm-hmm. with grief and rage? You know, um, I have this whole part of my life structured around journaling and journaling's not enough um, to handle grief and rage. So I appreciate that part of the question. Um, and I don't know that there's any handling of it anyway to begin with, but just to like, how do I cope with it? How do I um, navigate it? Uh, I think that I 
that it's always, that's always shifting how that happens. And I think primarily, um, probably the, the biggest, it's not a strategy, like what's the word, just the, the most dominant way of being for me in relationship with grief and rage is to try to remind myself and remember that the depth of the grief I feel is also the depth of the joy and love that I feel. And I, um, just spoke recently about this, um, in a workshop about, um, when I started working in, I started in social work in working in domestic violence shelters when I was in my early twenties, I think I was 21 and I was focused on children and children's programming in domestic violence shelters. And I was very, um, I knew that it was, I was like, okay, something's happening for me. Like my career is going in this way and there's no denying it. I feel this, I feel in my purpose. I feel called to this and it's really, really hard. And I am like up close and personal with some of the most brutal ways that families and systems can betray each other and children. And how am I going to be in close proximity to all of this and form closeness and connection with kids and families in this situation without becoming consumed by grief and rage? Uh, And I I started, I just um, looked started seeking basically like wh- how do I do this how do I hold this and I read some I luckily just like stumbled across this book called the heart of the buddhist teaching um I think it's called transforming suffering and loss into joy and liberation I, I got that wrong but it's something similar to that by Thich Nhat Han and um I read it at this just like foundational part of my life where it just like, I felt it land like so strongly with me. And that honestly has so much to do with, and my upbringing too. But those two things paired together just mean that I feel like I never want my eyes to be closed to injustice or to grief or to sorrow. um, Because it's what makes us, it just makes it easier for me to love you more deeply, you know, Um, and to love myself more deeply and I also feel like it's very, to me, it feels very um, evident and grief filled to see the way that um, Western, I mean, I'm talking about America or North America. I know you're in Canada. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> North, in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. Geography. <laughs> I didn't edit that part out. <laughs> We're the North North part. Yeah. <laughs> or don't. Who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, from like a, I guess like a, a white Western, you know, not indigenous to this place um, mentality, there's so many people, there's so much sorrow to be witnessed right now. And I think what's happening is there's this collective um, continuation and deepening of numbing of like finding ways to push it out and to pretend like it's not happening. And unfortunately, I feel that because we haven't, we haven't been, we don't have these containers um, especially as white Western people, um, for the grief and the rage that we feel, the numbing out is becoming more violent. Like the numbing and the pushing away is like um, getting more desperate is what it feels like to me. And that's also a reminder of I need to make space for all of it um, and just try to keep – that. Well, a lot of my work in my journals actually is like what was I amazed by today in spite of being terrorized by grief? What, what was something that like, that, that held me up today? The smallest thing I can find sometimes is enough. Mm. Thank you for sharing that and um, naming that sometimes even the smallest thing is enough because 
well, I think of that as a very like collapse friendly way to be, <laughs> so, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you gotta, some, we, developing the practice and the skill of scanning for what was amazing, what was delightful and being able to rest in it and, mm-hmm. and linger there. Um, we, we get, we gotta start small and, it, mm-hmm. and we have to be well, I think it's Adrian Marie Brown calls it satisfiable. Like that has to be enough mm-hmm. sometimes. So mm-hmm. is it enough to to notice the small thing? Is it enough to have a practice that you didn't do today? Mm-hmm. But, you, but you're, that being is there, not as judge and jury, but as in solidarity. Mm-hmm. That's just, those are really beautiful teachings. I, I really can't wait for your session at Witches New Year now. <laughs> I mean, I already, <laughs> obviously I was excited. I wouldn't invite you, but like, it's like, Ooh, now I'm feeling really jazzed. So oh, good. Me too. I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you for being on the show today, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I had a really good time. Okay. Seriously, the value you get when you sign up for a journal as altar workshop, it honestly, it blew me away. The care package that comes with like little stickers and ephemera you know, scrapbooking materials is so charming, so fabulous. And I personally, I just hugely respect people who deliver such high value in their offerings. And Erin just seems so generous. And it really shows in what you receive in the mail, the care that you can feel in every detail of her business. Um, to find the links to Erin's workshop, and her website and her Substack community and everything she offers, you can head to the show notes for this episode at numinouspodcast.com. And many thanks to Erin for coming on the show. So listener shout out. This, okay, so, you know, as always, the top downloads are going to be from the US and then uh, Canada, the UK, and then sometimes it's Australia, sometimes it's a European country, but very rarely does it go U.S., Canada, Italy? What's happening? Italia! Come va? Mi manchi, è passato così tanto. Ti amo tanto, grazie mille. Ciao, ciao. Thank you, Italy. I miss you. Finally, friends, remember that the Spirited Kitchen is available for pre-order online or from your local independent bookseller. Just ask them to bring it in. And in fact, many of them have online shopping and will ship to you. So if you're a Canadian customer, you can order from monroesbooks.com and get 20% off if you pre-order. So, you know, it's worth investigating if you can buy from your local uh, seller. Anyway, wherever you buy it, bring your receipt back to my website to receive your instant bonus downloads. So just go to the cookbook tab at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, Take care.